Well, good morning, everyone. Would you take your Bibles if you're online or in the room and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 7. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7. Well, we're in uh, phase one of... Um, daylight savings time, the fall back variety, you know, where you gain an hour of sleep. Yay! <laughs> was awesome. And the great part of it is, is that it gets lighter earlier. So instead of 7.45, it's 6.45. I love that. The downside of this is that it gets darker earlier. So about 5.30 tonight, we're going to be in complete pitch darkness. And I am not a fan. Can I just go on record as saying not a fan of early darkness? Not a fan of darkness of any kind, actually. And darkness, symbolically, is actually the backdrop of our sermon series in 1 Peter. The darkness of suffering and persecution. And Karen Jobes, a theologian and a scholar, has written this, describing the darkness of the recipients of Peter's letter. So because of their Christian faith, she writes, they were being marginalized by society, so losing their standing there, alienated in their personal relationships, and threatened with a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing. So they're getting pressure from all sides in this time of suffering. They truly are, as we've titled the series, Exiles. They're persecuted and they're suffering in a strange way, but they have a living hope in Christ. And as Steve mentioned several weeks ago, this letter may not have been written to us because our context is very different than the first century church, but it absolutely was written for us. It's for us today. So let's pray together and ask God to do what only he can do, which is take the word of God and apply it to our lives. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your living word of God. It is alive and powerful today in this room. In every living room this touches, in every place this word goes, it has life, it has power, and it can enter into the souls of people and change our minds, change our emotions, change our choices, because it is the power life-giving word of God. In fact, Peter says, we speak as the very words of God. So these are the very words of God, the precious word of God. Lord, would you take the incorruptible seed of the word of God, plant it into the good soil of the hearts of your people at Bentry and create life and transformation in us through it, we pray. And for those who are suffering, even within the sound of my voice today in the 21st century, God, would you bring comfort and inspiration and challenge and encouragement as never before. Lift up sufferers' heads today, Jesus, by your powerful Holy Spirit. And I pray this with my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Now, uh, we begin with an intriguing statement in 1 Peter chapter 4, the verse, very first part. It says this, the end of all things is near. And this is the mental picture in my mind. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It's the bearded dude holding the sign that says the end is near. You've probably seen cartoons like this before. And there's a long history of Christians setting dates for the end of the world. And spoiler alert, they all failed. Every one of them has failed. And no wonder, because Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, therefore keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. So stop, stop with the dates. 
We do not know the day that the Lord will come. But that doesn't stop people, as you know. So about 30 years ago, there was a man named Harold Camping. He was a Bible teacher and a radio host, and he predicted the end would happen between September 15th through 17th of 1994. So he wrote a book called 1994, and he calculated the date by the mystical numerology, fuzzy math stuff, and came up with September 15th through 17th, giving himself a little wiggle room, I guess, in 1994. Here's the cover of the book, and look how lucky he was that the cover editor added a little question mark at the end, <laughs> because that cover provided cover for Harold Camping when his prediction fell flat and Jesus didn't return in 1994. But that didn't deter Harold Camping. No, he actually set the date for 1995 then. And then he waited a few years after that didn't work, and he uh, did another date in 2011. And again, spoiler alert, Jesus still has not returned. But that doesn't stop people. But Peter isn't predicting here. Notice he says the end of all things is near. He's not saying the end of all things is here. It's near. He's using a word that, that means the last stage of a process. And he's referring to God's redemptive plan. That it's nearing its final stage. And we've been in that final stage since Jesus ascended into heaven. The church was born, the spirit was poured out. We've been in the last days waiting for the Lord's return since then. Jesus' return will usher in the series of events that will be the consummation or the end. But the apostles expected Jesus' return in their day. People are um, interested to learn that. And theologians call this expectation imminence. Imminence is defined as likely to happen very soon, coming very soon, or the next expectation. And this is a belief that the New Testament is filled with. New Testament verses refer to this imminent return of Christ. Paul refers to it in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 4, 5. He refers to it in Philippians 3.20 and 1 Thessalonians 4.15 and in 2 Thessalonians. It's all throughout the New Testament. But I want us to look at the words of Jesus' half-brother, James. And he wrote these words. James is one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, written maybe 15 to 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. And this is what he wrote. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near, just what Peter said. Brothers and sisters, don't complain about one another so you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Be patient until the Lord's coming. The Lord's coming is near. Look, the judge stands at the door. It's clear that the apostles taught and the church believed Jesus could come any moment, any time in their lifetimes, in their lifetimes. So much so that the Christians in the first century church greeted one another with an obscure Aramaic, Aramaic phrase, Maranatha. It's sort of like when you go to Israel and they say hello and goodbye by saying the Hebrew word shalom. We don't translate it, we just know it means peace. Maranatha meant Lord come. So when you came into church, people would say Maranatha. And when you would leave church, they would say Maranatha. Whether they spoke Aramaic or not, everybody knew it meant the Lord come. So they would greet one another and goodbye one another with Lord come, reminding each other of the urgency of waiting for Christ's return. But here's what's important to know is that Christ's imminent return is not an escape from the world. I think that's how we see it today. 
It's not an escape from the world, but a reason for ethical living in the world. This is what the New Testament authors are writing about. As they wait for the Lord's return, there's things that we ought to be and do as Christians waiting for the Lord's return. And he covers this in Titus 2, 12 and 13, showing us, Paul does, how to live while we wait. Titus 2, 12 and 13 says, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust, now live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. This is how we're to live. Sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age, continuing on while we wait for the blessed hope, which is Jesus' return. So this idea of Christ's imminent return is not an escape from reality. It's actually living where we're planted for these people in the first century receiving this letter that Peter is writing. It's to remain in Asia Minor, scattered throughout in these tiny house churches, hanging on for survival in the midst of persecution. And Peter is going to encourage them to live with the end in mind. That's why he starts this section by saying the end is near. He wants them to have an end-minded perspective, to live with this imminent return of Christ in their minds and then everything flowing from that place. And so now he launches into four ways or four things that would be true of Christians who have an end-minded perspective. So let's hop into verse 7b. The first one is to be watchful and serious in prayer. Watchful and serious in prayer. Verse 7, the last part. Therefore, with the end in mind, be alert, which is watchful, and sober, which is serious, and have that in your mind so that you may pray. So you have a watch and sober mind so that you may pray. Watchful and serious in prayer. Peter is saying when you have the end in mind, when you have that framework of your understanding, you are mentally and spiritually alert. Your thinking and your praying are connected. So you have right thinking that's grounded in the redemptive plan of God and what he's up to in the world, rather than the latest cable news we've watched or the latest website we've surfed. We actually are living from God's eternal redemptive plan and we are going from that place. Our praying is connected to right thinking. This nurtures a life of prayer. Prayer that isn't a periodic reaction but is a constant action. It's actually proactive. So if you walk across the lobby in the prayer room, and I hope online when you come back in, you do this, you just walk across our lobby and you can see a little chair stuck in the corner and a name tag that says Lois Hahn. Lois was one of our great intercessors of our church, went home to be with the Lord a few years ago. We miss her terribly and she baptized that prayer room carpet with her prayers and her tears and, and she prayed like mad for Bent Tree and for the world. I used to be able to, to go over to her house and have lunch and I'd love to sit and have lunch with Lois and actually listen to her sing and listen to her pray. We would pray together. So in Lois's Bible, I noticed a few things tucked away. First of all, she always had a map of the world, not the big wall map, but a little map of the world that kept tucked away in her Bible because she would 
pray God's redemptive plan across all the nations of the world. And she claimed to have assignments over a few nations, which I always thought was cool, as she was going to pray for certain countries. And she always had a prayer list of people that she loved and she knew and that she was praying for, people who were sick or were undergoing suffering or persecution of any kind. And so she was praying for people that she loved. And then she had a list of our government leaders in Texas and in the United States and then presidents around the world or prime ministers around the world. She would pray for the leaders and the leaders of Bentry, for our pastors and for our uh, lay leadership as well. She would be praying for spiritual leaders as well as government leaders. Lois, her prayer life was informed by her right thinking. She lived with the end in mind. So Jesus is coming soon. I want to be about what he's about. I want to pray his purposes in the world. And I want to do it across the earth. See, her prayer was not a periodic reaction. It was a constant, nurtured action of her life. I'm struck by the fact that this idea of being alert and sober in our prayers is written by a guy who couldn't stay awake in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus asked him to watch and pray. So if you are sitting here today or watching online, you think, I could never have a prayer life like you're describing that Lois has. I'm, I'm just not a prayer. I'm not good at it. Peter's prayer life was transformed. He was transformed from a sleepy disciple who couldn't stay awake to save his soul <laughs> to an alert and watchful prayer warrior. And that can happen to you as you lean in to what God's redemptive plan is for planet Earth. You're watchful and alert for the Lord to come at any moment. And you're praying God's purposes in the world. You're thinking and you're praying are connected. And you're praying as a constant action. That's what people who are end-minded are like. That's what they're becoming. People who are alert and sober in their prayers. But then there's a second one. They love deeply and persistently. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is thinking about Proverbs 10, 12 that says this, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. He's also thinking of what he wrote earlier in this letter in chapter one, verse 22, love one another deeply from the heart. And the picture behind this kind of love, this persistent love that covers over offenses is the idea of something being stretched, 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 stretched as far as it can go. The picture in my mind is a racehorse. Have you ever watched thoroughbreds run? And you see one that's coming now in first place and maybe it's vying for that first place over the line with another horse and they see the horse out of his little eye and he's like, no, you're not gonna get me, fella. So I'm gonna stretch out as far as I can. And the stride on some of these thoroughbreds is huge and every muscle and fiber of their being is stretching out to the finish line. That's the picture of this love. It's a persistent love. It doesn't give up. It stretches past what it thinks you could, where it thinks you can go. It helps me to think of love when offenses come into my life, and of course they come. They come into your life and my life. And when offenses come, I like to think of love not as a thing, but a person. 
I like to think of Jesus as personifying love because God is love. And I think of his stretched out love on the cross. You know, they dislocated his shoulders to pin him up there with those nails. Just think of the stretching of his arms to nail them into that crossbar. And he did this while he was covering my sin. He wasn't turning a blind eye to it. The Bible says he forgave it. He chose to forgive. Remember on the cross, he even said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like he's forgiving while he's stretched. His entire body is stretched. And so I ask myself when offenses come, will I let love himself cover it? Will I let love cover it? You may be experiencing offenses in your life, the day-to-day relational issues that arise. And we can either allow love to cover it, or we don't allow love to cover it. I think this is an important question to ask because relational offenses come. And in a little church, when the fringes of Asia Minor struggling for survival, this kind of love wasn't optional. They were meeting in a living room, not a megachurch. Relational schisms can hide in a megachurch. It's hard to hide in someone's living room. This was survival to them. If they don't love each other and cling to each other and stretch out for each other and cover over those sins, forgive those offenses, the light of the gospel may go out in that town or that city. And so this love, this, this, this persistent love that doesn't give up is should characterize those who are thinking, the end is near. I want people to know Christ. And so with my brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm gonna persistently love. I'm not gonna let relational offenses get in the way. I'm gonna allow love to cover it. Will we let love cover it? Every Christian community small or large, is enabled by God to forgive as day-to-day relational issues arise. We're empowered by the Spirit to let love cover it. And then the third one, to happily offer hospitality. Verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I don't think this is Peter saying, let strangers in your house. Although Christians were known for letting travelers stay, it was a beautiful thing that they did because there's not a lot of places to stay in the first century world unless people open their homes. I think this is talking about opening your home to people you know, to other Christians, like to have the church meet in your home, for all those people to to mob into your place, (laughs) no matter how beautiful or humble it is, and you, you feed them and you welcome them and you take care of them and you offer them fellowship and acceptance and belonging, and they're sitting on your stuff, and they're messing with your pillows, and they broke your favorite dish. And there comes the grumbling. That's why he says without grumbling. He's such a realist without grumbling. He knows we're going to grumble because hospitality is as much a work in the heart as it is a work of the hands. It's action and affection. It's like, it's loving people. It's actually an outgrowth of that persistent love. People who love persistently are going to say people over things every time and come on in to my house. I was never officially adopted because I have a mom and dad. They're gone now, but 
my um, college roommate was from Pittsburgh. And uh, because my home life back then in college was so um, dark, let's just say that. I didn't have a place to go on vacations from college. Like you go home for Christmas vacation and Thanksgiving and summer. So I was invited by Nancy to go to Pittsburgh and be with her family. And uh, Skip and Ginny Colusi would say later on, after I was there for nine years, they would say, uh, she, we invited her once and she never left. <laughs> and it, you know, it's kind of true. I became part of their family. They loved me and they invited me in. I don't know if you've ever gotten pictures at Olin Mills. I'm really dating myself, I know, but some of you will remember. Used to go to the JCPenney and go to the photo studio and get your family pictures taken. You're all leaning on a fence, looking idiotic, you know. <laughs> but I was in their family pictures and I'm sure their relatives are going, I understand those five people, but who in the heck is that girl? Doesn't look like anybody else in the family, right? Um, but that's where I learned what a loving marriage looked like. And that's what I learned, what an imperfect family looked like that loved Jesus. And Nancy's dad was an elder in our small church and I got to see that in action. I didn't see perfection, I saw love. I was the recipient of hospitality, this hospitality that Peter is speaking of here that's transformative. It's transformative to welcome people into your home. Hopefully they don't stay as long as I did, but to welcome people into your home, to always choose people over things, to do it without grumbling because your heart is changed when you welcome people into your life and into your things and into your home because it enriches both sides. It's a beautiful thing. Hospitality without grumbling. And then the fourth one, to serve with God-given gifts. Verse 10 uh, and 11 say, each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do it. They should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I think Peter's point is, Gifts can be kind of in two categories. There are speaking gifts. This is kind of how he generalizes it. And then there are serving gifts. They're all serving gifts. But back then, the verbal transmission of the teaching was so important because not a lot of things were written down. But the source is the same. Whether you're speaking or whether you're serving, the source is God. If you're speaking the very words, you're speaking God's word. That comes from him, or you're serving. It's with energy that he provides. The strength to serve comes from God. So the idea is no matter what you're doing, serve with those gifts because the glory goes to God. When you do it, God is empowering you. When you say it, you're saying his words. When it's received by whoever you're speaking it to, the change comes, that's from the Lord. It has nothing to do with the speaker and nothing to do with the server. We give glory and grace to God. And then he busts out at the end of verse 11 into a doxology. I love when the biblical writers go, oh, wait, I got to take a worship break. Hallelujah. Because that's what he's doing. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. But like a preacher, he doesn't stop there. He's still got more to say. Yeah, I thought you said amen, but he's not done yet. Because he's talked about four ways that people with an end mindset should live. They should be watchful and alert in their prayers. They should love persistently and deeply. They should offer hospitality with happiness in their hearts. And they should serve each other with the gifts that they received. 
Now he's going to turn to suffering. So now he wants to say, live with the end in mind, but particularly when suffering begins. See, because suffering puts a little bit of a, some more of a slant on it. When you feel pressure, a lot of times what comes out is not godly. And so now he's going to say, live with the end in mind when suffering begins, particularly that. He returns to suffering now in verse 12. And now he's going to show us three counterintuitive responses to suffering. It's so rich. Let's unwrap this in a second. Verse 12, he starts, dear friends. You know, Peter never met these people. And he calls them, really the word translated is beloved. He starts out beloved. Imagine if you're suffering and persecuted and you've lost relationships and maybe people in your own family have rejected you. And here's Peter going, you're beloved. What he's saying is you're included as a Christian in the thing that the father said to the son in his baptism, this is my beloved son, daughter, you're included. We are included in the belovedness of Christ. Somebody needs to hear that today. I need to hear that today. You're included in the belovedness of Christ. No matter what your circumstances are, you're included in Christ's belovedness because of our union with him. And now these counterintuitive responses flow out of this belovedness. First of all, there's a counterintuitive response to the surprise of suffering. Su- suffering is always kind of surprising. Like, what? What's happening to me? Like, how did this ever happen? Why is this happening to me? That's what we think, right? We're always kind of shocked by it. And so Peter says, stop being surprised. Rather, keep rejoicing. There's the counterintuitive response. Keep rejoicing. Stop being surprised. Keep rejoicing. Stop being surprised because suffering is what Jesus said we will go through. If the world hated me, he said, guess what? They're going to hate you. You're going to go through suffering and affliction and trial in your life. Stop being surprised by it. But now think about your response to it. Get over the shock and think of the response. Rather rejoice in it. That's very counterintuitive. Very counterintuitive. And so he says in verse 12, continuing on, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you. So don't be surprised. That's that idea of stop being surprised because they were already surprised. It's a human response. At the fiery ordeal. Do you remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter three, the three Hebrew friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. That's how my father sent us to bed every night. All right, you Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed you go. That's how we always learned it. My only biblical reference in my upbringing. And I was shocked to find out it was wrong. But anyway, the three Hebrew kids are thrown into, the friends are thrown into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar, right? And they they heat the furnace up seven times hotter than they've ever had it. And so somehow they're able to look through the tempered glass to see what's going on there. Those guys being cinderized, you know, incinerated. And they look in. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So there's the fiery ordeal. You feel like you're in the blazing furnace and it's seven times hotter than it's ever been. That's what comes to mind to me when I think of the fiery ordeal that has come on you. He continues to test you as though something strange were happened to you. Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ 
so that you may be overjoyed when you finally see him. That's when his glory is revealed. So if we're surprised by suffering, here's a change I can suggest. Instead of saying, why is this happening to me, God, which is a normal response, but it's an unanswerable question. Typically, the why question can only be answered years down the road when you look back in the rearview mirror and you go, oh, now it makes sense. So I, if I were you, I would humbly suggest stop asking the why question. It's unanswerable. Here's the question you should ask, and I got it from Louie, my friend. He said, when suffering comes, here's what you ask. I wonder what you're up to, God. I wonder what you're up to, God. Because that's a who question. Because behind every suffering, there is a loving God whose purposes are coming to a conclusion, who is sovereign over your life, who loves you. Do you feel like rejoicing is an impossible response in suffering? Remember Christ's presence with you. You know, his passion on the cross, that word passion means suffering. His suffering for you. Remember, you can rejoice because Christ suffered for you. And now I get back to the Hebrew children in the furnace. The guy looks in, he rubs the glass. You know, it's really, really hot. And he sees in there, he sees the three guys, they're walking around in there. It says the ropes were burned off their hands, but their clothes were not singed at all. And the weird thing is he looks in and he sees one like the son of man in there. So now there's four dudes in there. Who do you think that other guy is? I believe it's the very presence of Christ before he ever came in bodily form. See, the way we can rejoice is to know that inside your personal furnace that's seven times hotter than you can even bear, there is one like the Son of Man who's walking around in there and he's, he's, he's burning the ropes of this suffering off of you so the effects aren't gonna, aren't gonna harm you. He's with you, present in that place. That's why we can rejoice because Christ is always with us. And then he goes on, this most beautiful thing in 14, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do you remember Jesus' baptism where the dove comes down, it flies and it finds Jesus and it kind of lands on his little shoulder if the pictures are correct? That's what this is referring to, this the Holy Spirit resting in your life. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11.2 talks about the uh, qualities, the sevenfold qualities of this Holy Spirit that rests on us, in us. Wisdom and power and might and discernment. The fear of the Lord, not judging by what his eyes see or his ears hear, but judging righteously and justly. That rests on you in suffering and me. The indwelling spirit rests in us and rests on us in our suffering. He is an absolute survival resource for us in suffering. The presence of God, the spirit of God. And now a counterintuitive response to the shame of suffering. Sometimes suffering births shame. He says, stop being ashamed, but rather praise God you are a Christian, verses 15 and 16. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Wow, from murderer to meddler, that's a lot. Don't suffer because of your own sin, he's saying. 
However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Sometimes our suffering comes because we are overtly Christian in what we say and what we do, and we get whacked for it. And this is what was happening to them, and it still happens today. And, and Peter's saying, don't feel ashamed by that. In fact, you should rejoice and praise God that you bear that name, that it's like a billboard on the front of you. That's on your name tag, Christian. You see, the word Christian was a derogatory term in the beginning. In Acts chapter 11, it's used as a way to insult people. To say, oh, you're a little Christ. That's what you are. Or you belong to the Christ party. You're one of those Christ partisans. And an insult and a shame and honor culture was tantamount to no respect and a loss of status in the community. It should have shrunk them down to nothing. And that's what people were doing here in the first century. If they're trying to be outwardly Christian, they get whacked for it coming back, they shrink back because the insult is horrible. And Peter is saying, take that and turn it on its head. Actually embrace the name and relieve the power of the insult. Be proud of that name that you bear, the Christian name that must have been in wider use now as people were calling believers Christians. Rejoice to be called a Christian. I wonder when Peter's writing these words, is he recalling the shame of the denial of Jesus. Remember when he was ashamed of Jesus and denied him three times? Hmm. There's a third one and I, I'm not gonna get to share it with you because I want us to move into praying for the persecuted church today. So read verse 19 when you get home, 1 Peter 4, 19. So it teaches us there to suffer like Jesus and trusting ourselves to God's watch care and trusting our souls to the safety deposit box of God's trustworthy care. But today really is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I don't know if you know that. It happens the first Sunday every November. We have a long history of doing that in our church. The Voice of the Martyrs is a, a group that ministers and passes information regarding the uh, persecuted church. These are Christians around the world in 60 nations, they estimate, then they number in the millions. Christians who are persecuted like these first century folks in First Peter for being a believer in Christianity and Jesus. Voice of the Martyrs estimates that Christianity is one of the most persecuted faiths in the entire world. I just got an email between services from a ministry of one of our missionaries and they asked for prayer for their staff in an African country whose lives are being threatened for their work. Now, this is real. It may not be real to us in this moment. Our suffering looks different, but we can pray, can't we? So we're just gonna spend a few minutes together. I'm gonna prompt you we're just going to pray for the persecuted church. Would you do that with me? Like it'll be really meaningful. I'm picturing all the prayers of all the churches going up, supporting the rest of the body of Christ, the ones who are our family, who are in danger. So um, get comfortable where you are. We're just going to spend three minutes praying. Just make a little space. 
wherever you are in your living room or here in the sanctuary. And let me start out and then I'll prompt you what to pray. Lord God, we are thankful for the body of Christ. When something happens to one, it affects all. And I have to admit, Lord, and confess that I don't live every day thinking about the persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, but today I do. And I'm thankful for that, for the reminder. So as your people at Bentry pray, Father, would you take the prayers of your sons and daughters here and lift them up as a beautiful fragrance and let that fragrance roll over the nations to those who are persecuted, so I know they're not forgotten. And now would you pray, brothers and sisters here, that those who are persecuted around the world would sense God's loving presence. The millions who are persecuted would sense God's loving presence and feel connected to the body of Christ worldwide. Would you pray for a moment now? we do pray that your loving presence would be tangible to those who suffer persecution and are under threat. Now, Father, they would feel, even today in a special way, their connection to the worldwide body of Christ, the church, the big C church that binds us all together under one name, the name of Christ. And may they feel that today in prisons, in camps, in suffering, under threat, Father, would you remind them that they belong to something greater than themselves and they are not forgotten. And now would you pray, brothers and sisters here and online, that those who are persecuted might experience the comfort of the Spirit and receive boldness to witness for Christ, that they would receive the comfort of the Spirit and receive boldness to continue to witness for Christ. Would you pray now? send the comfort of the Holy Spirit to those who are under threat all around the world millions of Christians would you send the comfort of the Holy Spirit in a tangible way like a blanket of love would you send it and wrap them in it and then would you empower them by your Holy Spirit just like we were saying earlier that the walls would shake with the boldness they have to continue to witness for Christ Father, we praise God for our end-minded brothers and sisters around the world who are under pressure. They are our heroes and sheroes, and we're grateful for them. We lift them up to you today, and we entrust them to your care, Lord. We entrust their lives to the safe deposit box of God's trustworthy care. You are their father. Care for your children. We love you, and we thank you. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
before we close, I want to uh, encourage you to go to the prayer room if you've never been there to just walk across the lobby. Those of you who are online, you send prayer requests to pastorsatbentry.org. We'd love to be able to answer questions or take prayer requests. This Wednesday night at seven o'clock is our monthly prayer time. And uh, we wanna raise the roof with lots of praying on that Wednesday, so please come to that. If you're interested in joining the prayer team, I'd love to speak with you. Pastors at Bentry.org, just let me know and I'll contact you. I'd love to fold you into our prayer team. We love you, we're thankful for you, we're grateful for you. Continue to pray as you leave today for those who are persecuted around the world, our brothers and sisters, would you? And I pray that you have an amazing week filled with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We love you, and we'll see you next week, Lord willing.